0: Heavy Metal Spartans with Dr. Jeremy Swist. Well, apologies for the delay. I know I promised to have this episode up back in July, but as this is a hobby of mine, life, work and family need to take precedent. We're now back, and today's episode was an incredible amount of fun to record, and I trust you enjoyed as well. On the table for discussion with Jeremy is the idea of laconophilia, that is the love of Sparta, and its transcendence through time how that ideal has pervaded the heavy metal scene via classical reception, and also the genesis of the genre itself. Dr. Swist is a true gentleman and a scholar, so without further ado, I give you the episode. Ladies, gentlemen, laconophiles all, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the Spark Mystery Podcast, the metal classicist, Dr. Jeremy Swist. G'day, mate. How are you? Doing all right. How are you? Really, really good. Thank you. Now, Jeremy is currently a lecturer at Brandeis University in Massachusetts, having previously received his PhD in the classics from the University of Iowa. He's done some amazingly detailed work around Sparta's and more broadly the classical world's influence on the heavy metal music scene. And it is this topic that we turn today. Now, from the outset, I confess that after we began communicating and I started getting across your work, I was really struggling to understand how we could fit a discussion with you into the current timeline of the show. However, I was fascinated with the idea of classical reception in the world of heavy metal music and your compelling narrative around the topic left me with no option but to get you on air. So timeline aside, it just sounded like a lot of fun. So thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to have
1: me on. Thank you.
0: Okay, so before we get to the to metal music's particular form of laconophilia, let's talk a little bit first about the early times of people's fascination with Sparta. In particular, I'd like to start with the year 399 BCE and the forced suicide of Socrates, Two of his proteges, Xenophon and Plato, soon after began to exhibit some definite fandom towards Sparta. Could you give us a brief overview of their affection for their city's nemesis and how it perhaps influenced their work?
1: Hey, well, that's definitely uh, a good place to start. You know, so Lacanophilia certainly goes back uh, at least as far and even further. Um, you know, we have certain Athenians like uh, like Nicias, you know, who were very friendly with. Uh, you know, the Spartans and were, you know, advocated, you know, good relations between the Athenians and Spartans to the point where I believe he named his son Laca right? (laughs) Uh, so there's certainly those elements there, especially among the more conservative uh, Athenians and maybe a more anti-democratic element. And that really sort of shows you kind of where Xenophon and, uh, Plato, uh, were going with this. Uh, so, you know, uh, Xenophon being a very kind of militarily minded person, uh, you know, you read a lot of his works, you know, he's uh, very up on leadership and discipline, you know, and what makes what makes a good army and what makes a good society uh, where everybody does their part. And, you know, after the Peloponnesian War, uh, Xenophon, you know, found that but, uh, you know, here's what happens, you know, when democracy and, uh, you know, there isn't a clear hierarchy, uh, you know, in charge of either, you know, an army or a state or whatnot, a society. Uh, and so, you know, he did not really feel welcome there, you know, after, you know, after the, after the war and after Socrates' execution, and he eventually spent, you know, the rest of his life, uh, uh, I believe on an estate in Laconia, uh, writing some of uh, these works such as the Constitution of the Spartans, okay, uh, which is one of our earliest uh, works uh, on Sparta, uh, you know, not as uh, other than Herodotus. Uh, and that's another thing is, you know, a lot of these works on Sparta, as, as we know, are not written by Spartans. It's written by outsiders who have uh, certain biases that they bring uh, to the table. Um, both Herodotus and Xenophon and Plato and the rest, um, and so uh, we get kind of a rose-colored glasses kind of kind of look. Uh, even though Xenophon is writing around the time or in the aftermath of Leuctra, where you know the Spartans, as they were currently, were definitely in decline. But then we already started already starting to get these narratives of looking at Sparta at its height as you know not be, not necessarily a current example of a model society, uh, but uh, a model society uh, as it used to be. Uh, And so Xenophon certainly looked at Sparta as that model, and then Plato also, you know, after Socrates' execution himself, uh, became quite uh, uh, disenchanted with democracy, and, you know, we're pretty familiar with how a lot of Plato's ideas are become very rather anti-democratic, especially when you get things like the Republic, uh, where you have, you know, this kind of, this social, you know, natural hierarchy, uh, you know, controlling society, education is very circumscribed, uh, and and society is very regimented, you know, with the guardians and the, and the, uh, you know, the military and the producers and everything. Uh, And it's quite clear, and there's, you know, there's scholarship of this, that Plato was certainly taking a few pages from the Spartans uh, when he, you know, designed his, what, you know, several people now might call a totalitarian society. Um, And where this kind of leads toward, you know, the work I do is, you know, I look at Plato and Xenophon as, you know, they're fixating on Sparta as this alternative uh and they were pushed there by their own uh disenchantment with you know what was mainstream society to them which to them was democratic athens uh and so this is sort of the thread through uh a lot of laconophilia in history but definitely for heavy metal is you know heavy metal is uh kind of defines itself as you know eternally defiant and transgressive and so they see in sparta you know some a society that is Uh, you know, stands and has values that are uh, very different and perhaps even antithetical to a lot of what uh, they see, they perceive as, you know, the values and the order of the mainstream, um, you know, for better or worse. And so when we go through history from Plato and Xenophon, we then get to Plutarch, from which we get a whole host of, um, you know, things like and these other quotations from Spartan men and women, uh, which, you know, make the Spartans look out even to be even, you know, this more ideal alternative culture, uh, which, you know, for Plutarch, uh, you know, was, would have been, you know, an alternative to uh, the Roman Empire, though, as you'll see in like the life of Lycurgus, put up with the life of Numa, okay, we see that the Romans, you know, had you know, some similarities here. And so he was willing to, you know, to accommodate that. Uh, and then going forward from there, uh, you know, you get, it's not until like Machiavelli and Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the early modern period, where you, again, you see Sparta seen as this alternative to society, to the status quo. Okay? Um, so for example, Rousseau, he sees, uh, you know, the Spartans as this is kind of a, Society that's very, uh, community oriented. Okay. There's a general will, uh, you know, people live virtuously and it's very different than, you know, the current state where, you know, there isn't any of that. And, uh, you know, and then moving forward, uh, and then finally, uh, and this also intersects with, you know, some of the metal stuff as we'll talk about later, uh, Sparta also became very popular with, uh, first the Prussians, mm-hmm. a okay, in Germany, they okay, sees them as, you know, this ideal uh, military society, okay, that created these, you know, ideal soldiers uh, with perfect virtue uh, and duty and duty and honor. Uh, and so they created these, uh, you know, these cadet schools uh, that were sort of modeled on, you know, to some degree on the Spartan-go-gay. And then Prussia then uh, led to the formation of, uh, the state of Germany, and uh, through World War One, and then into World War Two, uh, Sparta became even more uh, of an explicit model for uh, Nazi Germany uh, and Adolf Hitler, a okay, trying to create again a society that was, uh, you know, was a what they would call a filkish state, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, the there's a master race uh, that uh, controls and, uh, and purges itself of foreign elements and controls, you know, the inferior races. Uh, so, for instance, you know, they would have, you know, uh, their, uh, the, you know the, the Germans would have seen the Slavs, for instance, as potential helots, okay, to be subservient to them. Okay? Uh, and, um, and this all traces back to, you know, uh, the notion that, you know, Nazi Germany and others had that uh, they were of the same blood as the Spartans because the Spartans were Aryans because <laughs> they believed in the myth of the Dorian invasion. Eh? Uh, and that uh, and, and they kind of went from there. yeah, exactly. So that is, you know, sort of uh, the history of Laconophilia there, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, excluding some of the more modern, contemporary stuff, uh, course, which we can yeah. talk about later. I'd suggest yeah. that, like, that association in particular with with fascism and Nazi Germany, that
0: left, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, a, a bad taste in the collective mouth of the scholastic community and really dwindled research around Laconia and the Spartans for several decades mm-hmm. and didn't really sort of resurface until the 70s when, I guess, you know, the, I guess the sins of the past were more or less forgotten and people started moving forward and mm-hmm. disassociating fascism with Sparta. So moving on to the, to the heavy metal movement, could you tell us yeah. a little bit about... Uh, before we get there, sorry. Could you tell us a little bit about the the discipline of, of classical reception itself, and what are the forms it mm-hmm. takes outside of the the heavy metal scene?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know, in in classics, you know, the you know the most traditional you know part of classics and, and ancient history is you know is you know it's philology. You know, we are studying the language and the literature, uh, and uh, as well as history and the culture of, and trying to understand. Uh, you know, the Greeks and Romans, you know, on their own terms, you know, in their own, in their own words. Um, And in addition to that, uh, there is what was traditionally called kind of the classical tradition where, you know, we would look at uh, how subsequent history has, you know, used, uh, you know, classical ideas or Art, architecture, literature, and how it's influenced, you know, everything from, you know, stuff in the Middle Ages up, uh, up through, you know, classical music, the Baroque period, etc. Romantic era, and then up to today. Um, And, uh, you know, but on the other hand, uh, what uh, is now called classical reception studies, uh, for a long time has been seen as sort of not as rigorous uh or important or you know serious as you know uh the more traditional parts of the discipline like the philology the literary criticism etc the language etc uh it was seen as sort of this kind of frivolous kind of side projects that people have uh you know it's like oh this is the fun work i do in addition <laughs> to like the thing i'm seriously researching right uh and there was kind of a stigma on that for a while um and I think uh, in recent times, uh, that stigma has, uh, it's not really a stigma as much as it's just, you know, not taken as seriously mm-hmm. by, you know, the, the powers that be within the discipline. Uh, but I think now uh, reception is becoming recognized, you know, as just as important uh, as other branches of, of, of um, you know, classical philology and, and ancient history and whatnot, because this is how our society or any society, you know, in history, this is how they interpret okay, the classical world. This is how they read these texts. This is how they kind of see themselves as the classical world as a reflection of themselves. And that's just as important uh, to kind of put these, the reuse and the reception and the appropriation of, of antiquity into these contexts uh, in order to better understand not just those contexts, a okay, uh, but also they help us understand antiquity the thing about reception theory is that it's not just uh, here is how you know say uh, Pablo Picasso you know interprets the Minotaur uh, we can also look at that the other way around and say here's how Pablo Picasso's reception of Theseus and the Minotaur and whatnot help us better understand the Minotaur of you know of classical myth yeah, okay? and nice. so um and so, you know, and the same thing with heavy metal, right? Uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, this is not quite related to the Spartans, but uh, you could look at the poetry of the Roman poet Lucan, a uh, who wrote about the civil war, a uh, you know, between Pompey and Caesar. And if you read the poem, it's you know, it's very violent. There's a lot of you know, gruesome and sort of over the top death scenes and melodrama appropriate to you know, the period of. Of, of Nero right uh when it was written uh and you know I look at that and I say wow there's uh this reminds me a lot of kind of of heavy metal lyrics especially like death metal lyrics you know where these <laughs> types of topics and this imagery and these you know graphic depictions of just you know of mortality really uh mm-hmm. you know abound are, are and so I think you know what there might be something here where we can read these two things alongside each other to mutually understand each other. Okay. And, okay. So okay.
0: let's let's get to the heavy metal music thing. Can you okay. speak to the foundation of the genre and what influenced its
1: movement? Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's uh, always a, a complicated question because <laughs> you know the thing about genres of music and subgenres is uh, it's just like you know uh trying to determine different genres of literature or periods of history. It's all completely arbitrary. Everything exists on a continuum. uh, And the line between where, say, rock and roll begins and rock and roll ends and heavy metal begins is completely arbitrary. uh, And there's dispute over what's the first heavy metal band or what defines even heavy metal itself okay as distinct from rock and roll or blues okay or classical or otherwise a okay. um however there are some consensuses so you know and one of which is most people would agree that heavy metal originated uh in the at the beginning of the 1970s uh with the uh british band black sabbath a okay. uh and you know, And Black Sabbath themselves never called themselves a heavy metal band. These labels are often applied in, uh, retroactively. Okay? Uh, but what Black Sabbath did, which was different than a lot of the rock and roll and the bluesy rock and roll, especially, uh, that was you know, in the 60s and before, uh, is uh, they had a different thematic approach. Okay? And this is why you know, heavy metal is best understood not just in terms of how it sounds, but also kind of what it's about. Okay, and how it connects to kind of a cultural kind of ethos A okay. so you know we think of the rock and roll of the 60s where you know there's a lot of songs based on love and kind of bringing the world together you know uh and trying to overcome you know a lot of kind of the ills of society you know uh we can end war uh and have peace uh and all of that you know it's connected of course to that to the hippie movement etc uh and there's you know it's it's often pretty positive you know, themes of you know, sexuality, love and, uh, and, and the rest very optimistic, okay? it's uplifting uh, what Black Sabbath did and what Heavy Metal did uh, was uh, they took a different turn uh, they, I think Heavy Metal speaks more to the uh, kind of the social disillusionment uh, that happened in the 1970s uh, where suddenly, you know, these kind of movements of the 60s sort of were perceived as kind of, they kind of failed, right, and that, you know, there was a sort of powerlessness, uh, you know, among, you know, especially people more of the working class, you know, and the, you know, industrial uh, parts of the world, um, which was, you know, the case with Birmingham, England, where Brack Sabbath originated, a okay? um, and this was the kind of music that, you know, very influenced by the blues, okay, uh, channeled kind of mo- emotions of sadness and hatred and feelings of doom and gloom, okay? uh, and so Black Sabbath, for instance, had songs about nuclear war, uh, you, know, about, uh, you know, about just the forces of evil in the world. Uh, and, you know, topics that, you know, you tend not to see so much in music at that point. And the other thing is, you know, they are also quite highly influenced by horror music, okay? And mm-hmm. so the themes explored in horror movies, okay, were also, uh, they sort of wanted to replicate that, you in, in music. In fact, Black Sabbath is the name of a 60s horror movie, and that's where they got the name. Uh, and so you kind of go from there, uh, and kind of the heavy metal kind of subculture uh, or counterculture, whatever you want to call it, or scene is kind of the what's in vogue to call it now, kind of developed uh, as this sort of uh, retreat for these, you know, working class, soci- socially alienated youth of the 1970s uh, to have this kind of music as to kind of express their collective antipathy to kind of the state of the world, to the status quo, uh, and in heavy metal, they found a kind of a music that made them feel powerful in a world where they were felt disenfranchised. And so this is where we kind of, this is where it uh, eventually develops into kind of a kind of music that would be receptive to uh, several topics in ancient history, especially, you know, the Spartans, Alexander the Great, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, because uh, by rejecting the status quo um, you can either think of a future that could be better, or you could look to a past mm. uh, where you feel more at home. Yeah, absolutely, okay? And yeah, yep. so it was, it required less imagination to kind of use this music and the themes of this music and the lyrics as a form of escapism. Okay? You escape to either a mythological or a, you know, a fantasy past uh or an historical past that at least as you perceive as you perceive it uh, is a place uh, where, you know, you could feel powerful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, You know, and so if you look at the Spartans, you can just imagine, you know, the uh, people in the heavy metal scene kind of uh, seeing themselves, you know, as similar to the Spartans as this sort of alternative society, you know, uh, against the rest of the world basically it's perfect yeah absolutely so let's
0: so we've got the the start date roughly the early 1970s i guess and you could almost call it a a counterculture movement within a counterculture movement so Mm -hmm. where when and how do the Lacedaemonians come into that picture
1: Mm
0: -hmm. so
1: really with the you have to move forward a decade uh when we get the new wave of British heavy metal uh, before, and uh, the development of styles like power metal uh, as well, uh, where we start seeing uh, heavy metal uh, turn its attention away from the present and into uh, other alternative worlds. Okay? Um, so we have uh, sword and sorcery liter- literature, uh, and other, you know, literature and other fantasy literature and and various mythologies starting to be explored. Uh, in these genres and then as you move toward the late 80s into the early 90s we also see in addition to historical themes being taken up we also see uh, you know the rise of folk metal and uh, bands uh, tapping into their national traditions uh, as well uh, in order to kind of give a sense of identity that they can kind of relive you know their glorious past you know before you know kind of modernity came in and sort of atomized everything. Uh, however, you don't, it's not really till the late 90s that we get our first song uh devoted uh explicitly uh to the Spartans. Uh and the reason it takes that long is uh in the late 90s is when two books were published. The first one was Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Fire, mm. okay, the, the novel. Uh, And the other one was Frank Miller's comic 300, and so it's interesting that these songs don't appear until right after these two things come out, Uh, and gives you an idea that uh, a lot of heavy metal's reception of history and mythology, uh, and and etc. is often filtered through uh, popular cultural reception itself. Okay, so they aren't reading. Herodotus, they aren't, you know, <laughs> cracking open, uh, you know, a history book, uh, they are getting it from more popular stuff like Hollywood films, uh, as well as comic books, uh, and, and Pressfield's novel uh, was, um, you know, has an influence as well. Okay? And so the first metal song on the Spartans, so we're finally there, uh, was <laughs> by uh, a crossover thrash band called Stormtroopers of Death. Uh, and this is a... It's a, great a night. yes. Yeah, and they S.O.D. for sort. Okay? Uh, and uh, they were a side project by uh, Scott Ian, uh who is the lead guitarist of the band Anth- Anthrax, one of the big four thrash metal bands. Uh, so, you know, somebody with, you know, a lot of auctoritas in the scene, if you will. <laughs> uh, and uh, so they put on at the end of their, their second album uh, this song called Moment of Truth. A okay? uh, And that's uh, essentially... Uh, was a song about the last stand of the 300, uh, which the vast majority of songs on Sparta are about, um, you know, which is too bad because there's so much other interesting stuff. But they focus on the last stand of the 300, you know, as the quintessential act of defiance of the few against the many, uh, you know, dying for, uh, you know, what they believe in. And then, and so that is, you know, really evident in this song, you know, one of the most, Ah, uh, powerful lines of song, It's better to die on your feet than live on your knees. Okay? Um, and the song can al- is also, you know pretty violent. Uh, you know it sort of revels in sort of the chaos uh, of battle uh, and and the you know the killing and maiming and all of that, uh, you know, creating a sea of blood and everything. And these are these are themes throughout these kind of lyrics. And so we kind of see, at least originally, you know, in the Spartans, uh, we see, uh, a very different take on kind of Sparta than what you might expect if you study Sparta, you know, yeah. uh, like you do on this podcast is, uh, you know, the Spartans are very disciplined, right. They are, you know, conservative. They, you know, they only go to war when they have to, right. Cause they don't want to leave the helots around alone. And whereas these bands kind of look at the Spartans and they're like, you know, these are these, you know, they love to fight, you know, they want to go out and, and uh, go out in a blaze of glory, Uh, and, you know, you know, fight for freedom. And so there's that sort of, so it's a, it's a different take, you know, they see in Sparta sort of, uh, an excuse to kind of violently lash out against, you know, uh, what they perceive as, you know, oppression and tyranny.
0: Yeah, I guess that, Well, that's my next question, I guess, and you've answered it in part, and I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've read some of the uh, the lyrics of some of the music that you, you've spoken about in your lectures, and mm-hmm. some of the lines are very interesting, you know, we are the Spartans, we are never defeated, and clearly they've never opened up a history book and taken into account that Thermopylae mm-hmm. was a, a massive defeat and yeah. obviously looped and there's a number of other instances in the time mm-hmm. of years before that where the Spartans were indeed defeated, but I guess whenever you anybody studies Sparta, as you've mentioned, you're sort of always constantly dealing and sifting through the Spartan myth, the Spartan mirage, and trying to get at the, the meat mm-hmm. on the bone, so to speak. So I guess for a broad picture, how historically accurate is the perception of Sparta within
1: that genre? Uh <laughs> <laughs> it's on the reception of metal in general is there's so much of it yeah. right there's literally thousands of songs by hundreds of bands uh throughout the world uh and they have they're on so many different topics but there's some topics that predominate, uh, and sparta is one of the most popular topics uh you know up there with alexander the great is as, as well are sort of the two from greek history that they like the most uh and so there's quite a range of you know how steeped in the primary and secondary sources these bands are but the majority of them uh you know are not uh you know they're not listening to this podcast or reading you know cartilage <laughs> and all of that uh but some some seem to show that they are you know reading herodotus or plutarch or at least you know giving this some thought but the vast majority uh are getting it from popular culture and uh, if you look at a kind of a timeline of, you know, how many songs, uh, come out by year on the Spartans, and I've done, you know, some number crunching with, uh, the, uh, the Encyclopedia Metalum, which is kind of an online database of, of metal music. Uh, I found that, uh, after the premiere of a certain movie in 2006, 2007, a, eh, uh, suddenly there were way more songs on Sparta, okay? uh And if you read the lyrics to those songs, it's quite clear uh, that they are taking their... They're basically taking the movie as gospel, Uh Which is quite unfortunate. However, you know, the movie itself, you, you could... Uh, you know, I could very well see how the movie resonates with kind of the heavy metal ethos hmm. very much. Um, you know, in fact, there's parts of the soundtrack that have like, you know, that sound very heavy metal themselves. Okay, so they didn't really need to, you know, uh, do much with with how the movie presented the Spartans and Thermopylae and everything in order to write heavy metal lyrics. And... Uh, these lyrics uh, and these songs, you know, it's to the point where they are directly quoting the movie, uh, you know, whether and it's usually, you know, includes like, you know, Herodotus and Plutarch quotes that are in the movie, but they might not necessarily know that. Uh, and they're also, you know, some songs even, you know, indicate that. You know, things that happened in the movie that didn't happen in the sources, you know, they took as happened. Like, you know, there's some songs that talk about, like, that wall of Persian corpses that they built, right? And then, and everything, you know, yeah, yeah, which is, you know, total baloney. Uh, <laughs> so, and that's the thing with, and it's not just, you know, the Spartans, and it's not just, you know, Greek or, or classical or Roman history that, you know, they are using kind of the Hollywood, uh, you know, popular culture perception, you know, as the basis, you know, this is, this is even in other uh, types of metal, like Viking metal, where, you know, they very well know that, uh, you know, a lot of these bands in Scandinavia, know they, they grow up, they know that, you know, what Hollywood tells us, this, the Vikings were like is not very accurate to what how they really were uh, but they're still going to write these lyrics and have this imagery of like you know the horned helmets and yeah. and yeah. know, all the you know the, and the pillaging and, and all of that uh, and these, these very kind of hyper masculine warriors uh, and that's what they do with you know the Spartans as well um, they see the Spartans as sort of these ideal you know manly men uh, that they want to sort of you know Uh, play act as uh, uh, in order to feel powerful, in order to retrieve, you know, something from the past they feel is lost in the present day, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk
0: some numbers then. Like, I've noticed you've had some some pretty detailed analysis on the the representations of Sparta and other uh, classical sources within the the heavy Mm -hmm. metal genre. What sort of percentage, I guess, out of, out of the, the music that does reference ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and that period, what sort of percentage of that music is referencing Sparta in particular?
1: Um, I think it's roughly about 10%, you're right. okay, which may not seem like much, but you're, this is compared to like any other possible topic in, you know, in classical antiquity uh, that you could write songs about. Mm-hmm. And so you know, there's um, by just, you know, scores of bands, um, there's a few concept albums, uh, but most of these are kind of individual songs that bands, you know, have on you know, particular albums. Um, So there isn't really like Sparta themed metal, it's more a band will write a song on Sparta that, you know, is thematically consistent with kind of some of the other songs they write about other topics, Um, you know, might be historical topics, uh, for instance, uh, or other topics about, you know, religion, uh, you know, uh, which is quite popular. Uh, So for instance, uh, to give you an idea of kind of how these songs fit into kind of a larger, you know, kind of album. Uh, so one of the most well-known heavy metal songs on Sparta is by a Swedish band called Sabaton. Okay? Uh, and uh, the song is called Sparta. And uh, if you go to YouTube, uh, you know, their label, Nuclear Blast, uh, actually made a lyric video. Uh, so you can you know, read the lyrics and listen to the song and they have various you know, imagery that they put into it, which is, which is quite interesting to watch. Uh, and Sabaton are kind of market themselves, they're a power metal band, they market themselves as sort of the band that are, you know, they market themselves as history nerds and they have, all their songs are about so many different periods of history, you know, in wars and battles. It's usually just military history, which is the vast majority of, you know, a lot of classical reception is, uh, you know, kind of militarily focused, uh, you know, in heavy metal Um because, again, these kind of these escapes to these times where, you know, uh, you can sort of play act as these powerful warriors wielding swords, uh, you know, with big muscles uh, and, uh, you know, something you don't really see today. As yeah, much. it's, it's so almost conglomerate though. in its nature as well. I've noticed yeah.
0: in some of the music you could you could almost imagine a, a Spartan not only serving within Laconia and fighting in the Peloponnesian War, but in turn being in Caesar's legions. And finally, yep. sacking Jerusalem
1: during the Crusades—it's sort of a real, a real mishmash of, exactly. of up there.
0: Very, Indeed, very and, and
1: even and it goes back to you know uh, they kind of see all these warriors. You know, even though like Sparta was all about kind of a collective, you know, the phalanx and the legions as well. You know, it's uh, but they kind of the kind of they kind of write these songs. You know, looking more these warriors, is more individualistic uh, and more like Homeric warriors, you know, Hector, Achilles, etc. You know, and, uh, uh, and rather than that sort of austere, you know, discipline of the collective, because metal is, you know, if if, any, if anything, it's about individualism uh, and how and what Sparta kind of offers is this is individualism, but compatible with this collective of we are the metal scene. Uh, and it's us against the world and we are the underdogs. So to go back to this Sabaton album, uh, the title of the album that the song Sparta is on is called the last stand. Okay. And it's the first song on the album, which is roughly chronological and has a bunch of other songs on it about historical last stands, uh, you know, such as uh, the samurai at Shirayama uh, and, uh, um, and, and others, uh, there might be a song on the Alamo, Alamo there, uh, but you know this is so it sees, it puts in context that you know throughout history there are these kind of models of uh, you know these defiant transgressive groups that stand up against you know uh, you know a, a numerically superior enemy, okay? And and uh, and it's not and the point is is not that they won or lost. Uh, it's it, the point is the defiance. Okay? Um, metal is sort of it defines itself basically as a negative, right? Um, it's about chaos. It's about kind of negation. Okay? And uh, if metal, you know, were to conquer the world, suddenly it wouldn't be metal anymore because it has to have something that it opposes. Okay? um that's why these transgressive figures you know people that challenge the status quo uh morally religiously politically etc okay are attractive to you know heavy metal bands okay because they sort of congruence okay and so the spartans are kind of seen in that light
0: right Mm -hmm. yeah so that's the i guess that's the an type i notice a lot throughout the work and from your lectures as well is that a fascination with, with, with crushing defeats. Uh, you note, um, obviously, Thermopylae um, versus at and Alicia Baris at Tudorborg Forest. It seems to be a recurring theme within heavy metal music that it's not important about the victory. It is really just that defiance against, you know, the, the superiority mm-hmm.
1: of, of whatever you're standing against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so it's, you know, it's quite interesting uh, when uh, they, when metal bands, you know, take, you know, take on, you know, these topics, and they actually are rooting for the overdog at times, you know, so a lot of these songs, you know, kind of taking on the Roman Empire like that, as well, and various Roman emperors, and even Alexander the Great, you know, who, you know, you could technically say he was an underdog, you know, numerically, you know, in, you know, against Persian and everything. But, you know, for the most part, you know, he's kind of seen as just, you know, the best conqueror. And, From there, you kind of get into the territory of, well, uh, it's not so much that these were underdogs from the past as much as this was, you know, a society that was organized, you know, in a way that aligns with, you know, some of our core values more than society today. Um, And this is particularly pertinent for bands that are, you know, a bit more political, you know, especially to the right. You know, seeing in Sparta and the Roman Empire sort of this a society that you know where you know the the people meant to be on top were on top. You know, very patriarchal, you know, very regimented, right? Whereas you know today, as some of these bands perceive, there are a minority of bands, but you know it's it's still pretty widespread. You know, see in society today where suddenly you know everyone everyone's equal. You know, there's no way to kind of see. Who, you know? Who's meant to be on top and all of that? Uh, it's very much uh, against sort of you know ideas of you know Homeric society uh, where you know people's worth you know and, and the pecking order were a matter were a matter of you know superiority in battle, right? Um, you know, having the most stuff. Uh, so it kind of it kind of reduces that. Yeah right. So just something just occurred to me. Just indulge me for a moment. Uh, are you familiar with
0: the work of the archaic Spartan poet Terpeis? Yes. Yes. Uh, I was just just thinking about some of his lyrics. How do you think he would have been as a, uh, a writer of heavy metal music
1: in the modern era? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I haven't quite thought of that because, again, uh, you know, when I think of Terpeis, I think of uh, you know he inculcating discipline. Right. Ah, um, course, yeah. you know, maintain formation. And certainly there's things in there being like, you know, uh, you know, stand your ground, you know, shield against shield and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, Tertius, you know, I don't really see his influence in lyrics, uh, you know, as much as things like, uh, you know, the epitaph attributed Simonides, you know, yeah. go tell the Spartan stranger passing by that here obedient, uh, to their words or laws, they uh, we lie. Uh, you know, and that's more, and that kind of speaks to the, kind of the metal ethos more is that, you know, uh, their obedience was essentially to the law, uh, which you would say, oh, metal is about transgression, why would they care about law? Well, uh, they sort of read that as the law is, you got to stand your ground in battle, right? Uh, retreat is not an option, or else you are a coward in pariah, right? And you have to die, uh, or win, you have to win or die. Okay, and this is, you know, these are the words of Demeritus in Herodotus, you know, telling Xerxes, you know, this is, this is their law that they fear more than any mortal king. Right. Um, yeah. and this kind of, again, goes to, you know, what metal sees in the Spartans is, uh, they're not about austerity and, and discipline, uh, because metal is all about kind of more, you know, unleashing one's moral inhibitions. Right. Um, you know it's rather you know dionysiac uh <laughs> in that respect you know uh you know releasing their kind of their animal instincts uh and so they see in kind of Thermopylae, you know an opportunity uh to to do that uh you know uh while at the same time kind of standing up for what you believe in A okay? and so you know in a lot of the in a lot of these uh uh, lyrics um you know they don't read so much like herodotus as much as they read like homer's iliad a okay, where there's a lot of similes of the spartans to wild beasts especially lions and the persians are you know their animal prey their sheep They are cattle right to be slaughtered or butchered right and all of that uh which you see in a lot of homeric similes as well right uh and uh you don't really see so much about kind of the, the tactics uh, or the strategy. Um, it's just sort of an all out kind of brutality uh, that you see um, being unleashed here. Okay? Mm, um, and one more point on that Place. is uh, sort of, and this kind of goes to the kind of the Homeric connection here is uh, these songs often invoke, especially the songs from Greek bands, okay, who you know do this out of nationalism or patriotism often, uh, that they're retrieving from the past uh, is they're invoking various Greek gods, right? uh, And they certainly invoke Zeus as sort of the king of the gods, bringer of victory. Uh, they invoke Heracles, you know, as their sort of ancestor and sort of the model warrior. Uh, but most often they're invoking Ares, right? The god of war, but not just the god of war, but the god of bloodlust. Mm. You know the irrational side of war. Okay, you know the god of punching you in the face rather than <laughs> an, the- an adult rage. Right of- right. Exactly. Okay, the berserker god. Mm. Okay, uh, and this is sort of the you know one of the patron gods of heavy metal, really. Okay, and this is the god that <laughs> uh, is kind of charging through them on the battlefield, bringing them victory. Okay, whereas you know if you look at the historical spartans you know they are worshiping you know apollo and athena yeah. these gods and goddesses of you know order and rationality right strategy a okay? um you know and you know moral discipline uh etc A, okay? uh so it's very, so you know they're reading things very differently yeah interesting yeah I do actually want to get to the to the
0: the Greek side of uh, metal music in the modern era because uh, I lived there for several years and I must admit I never came across any Greek metal bands. But I, I didn't go looking. But when I was researching for this episode, uh, it was it was staring me there in the face. So I want to get to that. But before we do, um, apart from Sabaton, is there any other bands that really
1: stand out around the world that um, that you could talk about briefly and and how they talk about ancient Sparta? Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's bands, you know, throughout the world on several continents that have songs about Sparta, okay, not just Europe or North America, but also, you know, South America, Japan, okay, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, yeah, there's bands in Japan, Um, they have a big metal scene there, they've had since, uh, since the 80s, uh, and it sort of just demonstrates that, you know, Thermopylae is more than just, you know, uh, you know, some, a symbol of Greek pride and patriotism. It's more than even sort of a, you might say, Western, you know, kind of civilization chauvinism going on here. Uh, but there's this universal message of Thermopylae as this inspirational, you know, uh, you know, stand of few against many to fight for what they believed in, right? Uh, fighting for quote-unquote freedom or at least, you know, their own political self-determination. But anyway, um, I think a band I would like to highlight uh, here is uh, the band Sacred Gate. Mm. Uh, and they're a heavy metal band from Germany. A, uh, and Germany is one of the most, you know, has some of the most uh, heavy metal bands per capita in, in, in the world as it's had since the beginning. Uh, and I highlight them because uh, they're one of three bands that have an entire concept album on, the Spartans and the battle of Thermopylae. Okay? Um, and the b- album is called Tides of War, came out in 2013. Um, and with this concept album, the band and you listening, the listener, have a chance to really kind of get in depth of how they, uh, you know, conceive of Sparta and the meaning of this battle um, in greater detail. And so the band, so the kind of an album is sort of a narrative of, you know, uh, You know, they of the preparation for the battle, sort of what's going through everyone's minds. And then finally, the climax is the battle itself, you know, sort of in the last song, which is kind of this epic, very long, long bit. Um, And musically, it's also very good. So it's always kind of what I recommend to people to kind of listen for listening to this particular, you know, stuff. Uh, It begins with uh, a song. Uh, in which it's almost like a, a prologue by Euripides where like a god shows up and like delivers sort of kind of, you know, a message. Uh, and the god is Ares and the god, and this is where Ares sort of, you know, talks about, I'm the god of war. I am the god of chaos and destruction. Okay? Uh, and then we have, of course, the Spartans responding to them and, and they're worshiping him. Okay? And so this kind of sets the tone of, you know, what sort of, you know, how the Spartans, you know, what their, where their priorities are, okay? uh And the other interesting thing is, as you go through this album, you know, in the preparation for the battle, uh, it's one of the few bands that actually acknowledge that Thermopylae was a lot more than just the Spartans, okay? That uh, there's, uh, you know, they have a song where, like, they're naming all of the different uh, poleis uh, who are taking part uh, in this alliance of of, like, 30... 30 something city-states and sending, you know, forces to, forces to Thermopylae, uh, which is, which I think is great. It's awesome. Uh, And, you know, then there's a song where, you know, there's actually, you know, uh, there's actually a song that's actually, it's acoustic. uh, And it's a song about kind of the Spartan men saying goodbye to their, you know, to their families and their wives. And so this is actually a song that, you know, actually gives some, uh, airtime to Spartan women, uh, which, you know, we hear a lot about Spartan women when we study Sparta, you know, uh with the sayings of Spartan women, but also just sort of they're known as, you know, uh being exceptions to a lot of the rule of say places like Athens, mm-hmm. where uh, you know, at least in the upper classes, women were expected to, you know, be uh, you know, kind of kept under lock and key, you know, to kind of exaggerate quite a bit, uh, Mm. but uh, in metal in general, um, there's uh, at least traditionally, uh, you know, there's not a lot of space for uh, women in general. And this is changing, um, you know, as more women, uh, you know, come into the scene and become musicians and fans, et cetera, uh, to the point where today there's definitely much more of a, a balance gender wise. Um, but still a lot, but classical reception in general has a, a long way to go because there's still this focus on sort of, you know, the men, uh, and, you know, the military narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have this touching song about that includes kind of the perspective of the, of the women, which I think is a nice touch, uh, bleeding up to, you know, the battle itself. Yeah, that's um, nice, must touch. yeah. And, uh, if I can highlight one more band, Please. uh, which I think is worth talking about. Um, you know, it w- I would be remiss if I didn't include a Greek band, okay? because the, of course, Greek bands, you know, are tapping into their own past, okay, mm. and kind of retrieving these models of, you know, glory uh, and sort of uh, the people they want to emulate uh, from a time before Christianity, okay, so uh, you know, Greece is, you know, a lot of Greek bands are you know reacting against uh, not just um, they're reacting against kind of the uh, the Christian establishment, uh, but they're also um, reacting to uh, the politics, especially surrounding the refugee crisis and immigration, as well as you know tensions with uh, with Turkey that you know of course go back historically quite a bit, uh, and so all of those factors kind of fuel their fixation on you know, the classical past, especially the Spartans and Thermopylae as kind of context in which, uh, you know, these, uh, these true Greeks, as they, as they saw them, you know, resisted these foreign imperial powers that wanted to, you know, not only take away their freedom, but also install, you know, almost a new religion. So there's, you know, they talk about how Xerxes is a god king, this is some foreign god that wants to kind of Control their minds, and so you can see there's sort of a resonance with, um, you know, seeing sort of Abrahamic religions, uh, mm. you know, as, in a similar in a similar light. But anyway, uh, one such band uh, is a black metal band from from Greece. Most of them come from Athens, uh, called Xenial Okay, and they have a song called uh, "Eton a e Epitass," a okay? which is with yeah. your shielder on it, right? One of the uh, sayings of Spartan women from Plutarch. Uh, and, you know, it is, you know, it's a typical song about uh, the, you know, about Thermopylae, okay? uh, But what's interesting about the song is two things. First, uh, it acknowledges, it's one of the few songs that acknowledges that actually helots okay, were also fighting at Thermopylae. Okay? So it kind of almost gives it a sense of, you know, this isn't just, you know, the elite homoyoi right, and noble aristocratic warriors but these are you know Greeks of all classes are taking part in this common defense of their country right uh and then toward the end of the song we have a quotation from the Athenian playwright Aeschylus from uh the play the Persians A, okay? and what's interesting is that play is you know it's not about Thermopylae it's about the battle of Salamis a okay? and uh you know, and then there's a messenger speech in that play where, you know, they report the, what the Greeks were kind of shouting as they charged, you know, toward the Persians, you know, on their ships. you. Know, and it was sort of this battle cry of, you know, uh, Greeks, uh, you know, fight for your freedom, liberate your country and all of that. Uh, and what Xemiel does is they take that quotation out of context and they put it into a song about Thermopylae okay, to very powerful effect. Uh, And they kind of do what uh, some scholars think Aeschylus was doing with that play, which is this isn't just a pro-Athenian play, or this isn't just a pro-Spartan song, but this is a Mm pan-Hellenic song. A this is a pan-polemic, a pan-Hellenic kind of enterprise here, Uh, and uh, you know, going back to. You know the liberation from the Ottomans and the in the Greek War of Independence in 1824. So this kind of uh, this has been instilled in the Greeks this spirit of um, you know we are capable of you know uh, resisting uh, tyranny and oppression. You know time and time again. You know it happened against the Persians. It happened against the Turks. It happened against uh, you know the against Mussolini, mm-hmm. etc. Right. Um, so I thought that was worth highlighting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if that, I guess, yeah. finally, and I suppose to, to bring things to a conclusion, um, could you talk a little bit about the dark side of heavy metal within, within Greece and the appropriation of the Spartan narrative within Golden Dawn, and, and forgive the
1: term, their musical wing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of the context here is, again, uh, metal is reactive and not just reactive, but often reactionary. Okay. And, you know, when you have a musical genre and a culture that is, uh, you know, defines itself as, you know, in defiance of the status quo and celebrates the transgression thereof, um, you can go in two directions. Okay. You can go to the left, a okay, uh, trying to build a better society that doesn't exist yet, or you can go to the right, look at examples of past societies, how society quote-unquote, used to be uh, as the proper models to return to, even though the conceptions of what those models were may not be, you know, necessarily true to how those models historically were, right? Uh, And so, as I mentioned before, uh, metal, while having, you know, uh, perhaps the majority of the world, you know, uh, you know, being politically, you know, to the left... Uh, there are a lot of elements within metal that are also politically to the right. Mm. Okay? And so uh, these sorts of narratives of Thermopylae, these narratives of the Roman Empire, etc, you know become very attractive to bands that combine kind of this defiant spirit of heavy metal with extreme right politics. Okay? because uh, they see in the Spartans, you know a society that could easily be compatible, with uh you know racist xenophobic fascist politics okay we've already seen how nazi germany a uh you know saw a lot uh in the spartans of how they saw themselves right uh however you know inaccurate it was but the truth is is that especially with sparta you know some of that was true mm-hmm. like xenelasia uh, and the, uh, sub, the subduing of and the enslavement of the helots, a uh, uh, and the sort of uh, removal of kind of individual ambition and subsuming it to kind of the uh, to the state, uh, which is where things get a little interesting. With kind of bands that are that far to the right, mm. is metal is all about individualism. A uh, is about uh, you know. Nobody can tell you what to do. You are your own master, eh? Uh, But bands that fall into kind of the fascism thing is like, wait a minute, fascism is, is all about, you know, you know, subsuming the individual to, you know, a dictator or kind of the will of the state, putting yourself at the service, you know, of, of the state, uh, you know, to fight and die for it no matter what uh, in order to maintain the, this collective Right, uh, which is a, usually a racial, a racial collective okay, that believes all the same things. Okay, that's just that's why I think it doesn't make sense. But yeah. you know, it's this. This is but 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 it happens anyway. Hey, okay? and so um, not just Greece, but bands. You know, in other places in Europe uh, and in the United States, you know, there are bands that are white nationalists or fascists uh, that have songs about Sparta where. Uh, you know, they are replicating a lot of the things that, say, the Nazis did, Um, you know, bands that, uh, you know, celebrate, you know, the terrorism against helots, right, as, you know, something that we should, you know, replicate today in order to get the, you know, the inferior elements in our society, you know, put in their place or cast out, right? So, anyway, um, in Greece, especially, uh, we have seen in the past couple decades, uh, as, as well as in other parts of Europe, uh, we've seen, and of course the United States as well, and, and, and Australia, uh, you know, the rise of far-right parties. Okay? And in Greece, as you, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the, one of the major far-right parties to come to prominence was Golden Dawn, okay? Um And what Golden Dawn does is, or did um, traditionally, is they would meet at Thermopylae uh, you know, on the anniversary of the battle, um, which is around this time of year, I yeah, believe, it's August. This month, uh, yep. this month, August, right. Uh, and they would be, you know, they, they have torches, they meet at night, and they would basically sort of reaffirm kind of their platform at Thermopylae as being very, uh, you know, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, anti-Turkey, anti-Muslim, uh, you know, trying to keep uh, Greece, you know, ethnically pure as they see it, Uh, and and all that kind of stuff, right? And they sort of see Thermopylae as, you know, kind of uh, the model for, um, you know, casting out the foreigner, right? Uh, And so those politics in Greece, so you have that, and you also have another thing going on in Greece uh, in the past few decades, which has been the resurgence of uh, Hellenic polytheism, A So this rejection of the status quo politically is also intersecting with rejections of the status quo religiously. They, at this point, thousands, if not tens of thousands, of people in Greece uh, uh, have been, you know, apostatizing from their Orthodox Christianity and uh, adopting, uh, you know, a sort of a belief in the traditional. Uh, pagan gods of Olympus, uh, and which is which is fine. there's uh, you know there's plenty of people that I know personally okay, who are Hellenists, uh, religious Hellenists. Okay? And if you look at religious Hellenism, there is you know nothing you know that is uh, problematic with it. Mm. Okay? Um, however, you know a lot of people in Greece and elsewhere, you know they do uh, use it to, and combine it with these politics. Uh, as a sort of collective rejection of the status quo and a and a desire to bring back these models from the past, a okay, from before the times of Christianity in Greece. Okay. And this leads us to uh, Greek metal bands, okay, uh, which are not necessarily uh, you know, devout. You know, Hellenists, uh, however, they see in the pagan gods, you know, this alternative model. So they flirt with that somewhat. But there are Greek metal bands like Kawir who are actually devout, uh, you know, uh, Hellenic polytheists. Um, but <laughs> that band, that band, they're, they're fine. Uh, they don't flirt with those kind of politics as far as they know. Uh, but other bands such as, uh, Der Sturmer, uh, and, uh, Nair Mataron are card carrying members of Golden Dawn. And so if you can read their lyrics and you can see that those types of politics that, you know, I listed, you know, uh, earlier, you know, are, are present in their lyrics uh, and in how they read uh, Thermopylae and the Spartans and, and uh, ancient Greek history. Okay. Um, and uh, Der Stormer in particular, they're one of the most well-known bands in a subgenre of metal known as National Socialist Black Metal. A very specific. Yes. Yes. Uh, So there are bands that they are, they consider themselves so extreme a, that they've fallen into that territory. You know, this is like the ultimate taboo. Okay. The ultimate, you know, F you to society is to, you know, put on swastikas uh, and to adopt this, you know, ideology that is so, anti-everything that they think man- that mainstream society stands for as they see it, okay? And they feel powerful as a result of that, mm-hmm. okay? And so they form this kind of collective, uh, you know, and so Der Störmer is one of the most kind of prominent bands in that scene, not just in Greece, but in, in Europe, and in the world in general, okay? And in fact, Der Störmer itself, they're named after the anti-Jewish newspaper from, from Nazi Germany. A, um, and so they are, you know, you read their lyrics, you look at their album covers, they are, you know, very much uh, Hitler worshipers. A, uh, and you would think this is something to sort of just dismiss as just, you know, crazy stuff. Uh, however, this band is, you know, pretty influential. A, and the problem with kind of dealing with this kind of music is, uh, yes, there are people who listen to it, who buy into those ideologies, and that's why they listen to it. Okay. However, there's a lot of people who listen to it, not because they believe in that stuff, but either they think still they like how the music sounds and they don't really care what the pol- about the politics. Okay. That's how privileged they are uh, to be able to listen to that and not be threatened by it. Uh, but the other thing is, they, f- it's that sort of that forbidden fruit kind of thing. It's like listening to this gives you a sense of, you know, you are... You know, it's like St. Augustine stealing the pears or the apples from that tree, you know, just loving this loving the sin just for the sake of sinning, because it makes you feel like you're, you know, you're getting away with something, right? Uh, Because something is forbidden, it actually makes it more attractive. And so that's sort of that sort of channeling that. Uh, And so that's kind of a that's sort of how these bands sort of, you know, maintain, you know, their existence uh, is people willing to overlook, you know, their very harmful politics politics uh just because you know they uh you know it, it feels dangerous yeah right, right. okay yeah uh, well i
0: guess the problem with sparta is that you know that you can't define them by modern standards. standards either left or right or even by right. ancient standards is truly aristocratic oligarchic or democratic so therefore it's it's open to mm-hmm. interpretation you can really pick and choose mm-hmm. what you like and make that representation the the narrative for whatever you're trying to promulgate at the time but that was a fantastic chat Jeremy I thoroughly enjoyed that I understand mm-hmm. you're going to provide me with a, a Spotify link for uh, relevant music that we've been talking about today so any of the listeners that are interested in getting involved with it can can have a listen and enjoy it for themselves mm-hmm. uh, if any of the listeners are interested in catching up with with what you're currently working on any future projects you've got where can we find you
1: okay uh, so I'm on Twitter at uh, Metal Classicist uh, you know this is where I do you know a lot of my kind of public scholarship uh, there, so you can catch me there. I also run a Facebook page called uh, Heavy Metal and the Ancient Worlds, uh, and uh, you know, in terms of the topic we talked about today, uh, uh, I have uh, just completed writing a chapter on this very topic of Sparta and heavy metal uh, for a the forthcoming volume, the Cambridge Companion to Metal Music. Uh, edited by Jan Herbst, uh, which will be coming out hopefully in 2023. Right, so that's where you can read some of this. Uh, great. Right. Awesome. I'll put links
0: to um, yeah, everything in the show notes there. And yeah, look, a, a massive thank you to yourself for taking the
1: time to to join me on the Spartan History Podcast. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, glad we could uh, fit in uh, all this stuff because it, it's, uh, there's so much of it out there that there's, there's so many different things to talk about. So uh, it was we covered a covered a good grain. So thanks again for having me on. No, no. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. You take care. You too, man.
0: That was fun, right? As mentioned, within the show's notes will be the Spotify link to Jeremy's list of Spartan-influenced metal music. I think it's called the Spartan Metal Mirage. A name so cool, it almost deserves a trademark. Also included are all the relevant links to find Jeremy and keep abreast of all his prior work in this area and the projects he has slated for the future. Up next, and I promise it won't be a long turnaround this time, I am interviewing the American author Mike Cole. Mr. Cole is soon to be releasing a book called The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy. Its release is early next month. Having just finished the book, I'm really looking forward to speaking with Mike and get his thoughts on the not-so-invincible nature of the Spartan War Machine. A fantastic expose that pierces the ever-present Spartan Mirage It also goes into meticulous detail describing the nature of the arms, armour and tactics used by the Spartans on the field. I'll be interviewing Mr. Cole next weekend, so you can expect this episode's release by the end of the month. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. Quickly before I go, my dear friends over at Classical Wisdom are soon to be hosting their 2021 Symposium. A two-day event, starting on August the 21st, it will be featuring many of the brilliant minds in the classical field. My hero, Paul Cartledge, will be there, along with another legend, Edith Hall, Niall Ferguson, and many more. Ticket prices for the two days are only twenty-nine dollars, which, placed against the caliber of speakers, makes it quite possibly the bargain of the 21st century. If you're interested, I strongly encourage you to go to Classical Wisdom Symposium 2021 dot ie And Eventbrite is E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E Grab some old world, preferably Greek red wine, and get involved in what will be an amazing event. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore history and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode, and are keen to hear more, subscribe and up to podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from and leave a review.
1: See you next time.